We're going to finish the book of Job this morning. I think it's been a powerful series, hasn't it? Yeah, God's, God's just uh, spoken to us in so many ways. It's been an immense uh, amount of hope-filled lessons for us. Today, we're going to learn from the concluding chapter. Chapter 42, I invite you to turn there with me. The thing about this chapter, the ending is just too good. It raises as much questions as it solves anything for us with all that we've learned. I'm going to begin reading. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. That would be a really great tradition to pick up again. Yeah. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karin Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. Do you get the problem here? We have just spent 41 chapters looking at, and let me just say it one more time because it's my last chance to, looking at the story of a man who, other than Jesus, was as good a man as ever lived, so that none of us can say we're better, who went through such a series of tragedies that none of us can say we have it worse. We've had the opportunity to wrestle with the big question, why does suffering happen? But one of the things we've learned is that the issue of Job's friends that you get what you deserve in life, that if you live a good life, you're going to get blessed. If you live a bad life, you're gonna have hardship. And therefore, because Job has experienced such great devastation, 
it indicates there must be some great sin, some great failure that God is holding him accountable for. It's that whole karma idea. And we've spent all this time eliminating that idea, and now at the end, do we find out it's true? Does God bless Job because he's faithful in the trials? Or because he's repented, which was exactly what his counselor said, if you repent, God will prosper you again? Are his friends right after all? The fact is, if we were writing the end of the story, we probably would have had a different final chapter for Job. Because this presents questions for us. We're going to explore those questions together. The chapter breaks down into three sections, and we're going to call them confession, vindication, and restoration. We see in his confession three great truths. And the first is about God's absolute sovereignty. He says, you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is one of the lessons that Job has come around to. Like his friends, Job himself wrestles with that idea, I am suffering unjustly. You hear that that argument? He's still bound by this philosophy that you get what you deserve. This isn't what I deserve. It's unjust. Last week, Lou brought us through God's defense where, again, he never explains why Job suffers. And that's one thing I want you to take from this is that I know in this room many of us have faced devastating situations. Some of us right now are in the midst of those situations. And I wish I could promise you that that someday you're going to understand why. And I think very well-meaning people may have said that to you. Someday you'll see, you'll understand. Well, maybe from the prospect of eternity, maybe. But there's no promise in Scripture that that's true. In Job's case, as in all of Scripture, God never bothers to explain himself when it comes to our suffering. Ultimately, what suffering reveals to all of us is that God is God. His ways are not our ways. Now, this is not a statement that suggests that everything is predetermined, that we can not do anything that hasn't been purposed by God. That's that's not what the sovereignty of God means. But what it does mean is that God operates on a totally different level than we do, that he not only can do all things, but what he intends to do, he will always do. There actually is something empowering to come to terms with that. This is part of Job's transformation. This is part of Job's ability to move on. You know that phrase where it says, I repent in dust and ashes? You know, he's already in dust and ashes. Do you get that? And that word repent in the Hebrew is very different than the word Job's counselors said to him. That Hebrew word for repent is to turn from your wicked ways. In this case, it's a renunciation. What he's saying is, I recant my claim. And so one legitimate way to translate his phrase, I repent in dust and ashes, is to say, I recant my mourning. We could say that this confession is Job finally getting up out of the ashes and moving forward with his life. 
And one of the ways he's able to do that is because he surrenders to God being God. Man, there's nothing that will get you there more than facing the impossibly tragic. God is God. I'm trusting that he is acting wisely. The second truth of Job's confession is that God's wisdom makes our wisdom look like ignorance. He says, I spoke of things I do not understand. Too wonderful for me to know. God's wisdom makes even our wisdom look like ignorance. That word wonderful in English is a little deceptive because what we mean by wonderful is what? It's awesome. It's great. But the Hebrew word means full of wonder or endless wonder. Something that I will never get. I will always be wondering about it. He admits that his earlier attempts to make sense of God and have God fit into his wisdom, his sense of how things ought to be, is a fool's task. We have to maintain wonder in our view and relationship of God. I want to be very clear. We can and should know all that God has revealed to us about himself in the Bible. But that is very different than thinking that we know everything about God because we know what he's revealed to us about himself. When God operates outside of our understanding, we need to be careful to not fall into what we learned two weeks ago was actually the moral failure of both Job and his friends, to diminish God by insisting that he fit into what we understand of him. We're responsible to know and be guided by what we can learn and know about God. But he is bigger than all of that. When he says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, that's an understatement. And when he says, your ways are not my ways, he's speaking to children using simple language, but speaking of a profoundly wonderful concept. God's wisdom makes our wisdom like ignorance. Job, learn that. And then the final one, I think, is really profound. Say that one with me. Knowing about God leads to arrogance, but actually knowing God leads to transformation. You see the difference? Here's the verse, and let's say this together. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. See, if your knowledge of God is, is all secondhand, not based on a relationship with God, but more a study of the religion of Christianity or the doctrines, that type of knowledge of God leads to arrogance. These are people who think they can measure God, have him all figured out. They have an answer to everything. But then let God actually show up. Yeah. There's a lot of arrogant people in churches because they know about God, but they don't know God. They haven't experienced God and realized that there's wonder in it. Job's experience was very similar to Isaiah's in Isaiah chapter 6. Here is a godly man. He's actually serving in the temple. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. And then around him were creatures with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying around, and they were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the thresholds of the temple shook. Isaiah goes instantly from knowing about God to seeing the Lord Almighty. And what are the first words that come out of his mouth? Who knows? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And that is the path to his confession and cleansing. And this is equally true of Job. It was in seeing God that he sees himself in a fresh way. And as a result, he is able to repent and be transformed. So powerful. Do you know about God? Do you know God? Is your faith one that produces arrogance and pride in you, or does it produce humility and transformation? That's exactly what happens to Job here. He is changed forever. That's confession. And the next section is vindication. This is the part that all of us go, yeah! because his friends finally get put in their place. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he now turns to Eliphaz the Temanite and says, I am angry with you and your two friends. This is interesting. Several times Job's friends have said to him, Job, I wish God would show up and set you straight. They were so confident and arrogant in their knowledge about God. And then God finally shows up and they're the ones that get set straight. They say to him, God must be angry at you, Job. And then God shows up and they find out God's angry at them. They say to him, Job, you need to confess your sin and get right with him. And God shows up and they find out <laughs> they're the ones that have to confess. They're the ones that have to get right. Wow. Job is given God's public approval four times in verses 7 and 8. God declares that Job is my servant. Four times. Job is in relationship with him. Job is God's servant because from the very beginning we have known he is a righteous man. How did Job become righteous? Was it because he lived a perfect life? No. Job, a contemporary of Abraham, found righteousness in the same way Abraham found righteousness. The writer of Hebrews says, it is recorded, Abraham believed God, and that was uh, accorded to him as righteous. Job, Abraham, just like you and me, we become right with God through faith. And God makes it clear to his friends, Job's mind, but you, I got, I got problem with you. We get to the final section of the chapter, and we're calling this restoration. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again. And you read it, twice as much as he had in the beginning. 
This does not make sense based on everything we've learned. The ending is too good. Because most of us don't get back what we've lost. We would prefer an ending that matches our expectations, that, look, we're just going to learn to trust God and what comes, comes. Instead, not only is Job restored, he's doubly restored. You have to ask, why is this? In the end, is God rewarding Job? Which would be just the opposite of what we've learned through the whole book. The first thing I want to share is that the fact that God chooses to prosper Job again only underscores the sovereignty of God. God's going to do what he's going to do. But even more importantly, the whole point here is to watch Job in a new situation. We have watched Job through the most difficult of circumstances. We've wept with him. We've admired him. We've struggled with him to understand why this is all happening. We've related to Job in that situation. One of the most important things that Lou said last week was that at the point of Job's confession, nothing had changed for him. He was still destitute. He had lost all of his children. He was still in mourning for their loss. He was still in misery from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Nothing had changed for Job, but everything had changed in Job. It's one thing to be humble before God and to learn God's grace and to be wise in suffering. It's another thing to carry those lessons forward when we prosper. I have walked with many, many people who have gone through difficult circumstances only once those circumstances end to see them go back to their old ways. And so the question that the last chapter asks is, does the transformation that occurs in Job's heart in tragedy carry into the next chapter of his life in prosperity in this case? And in fact, the last chapter is all about God's grace being demonstrated in Job and through Job. And we see it in several ways. The first way we see it is Job's grace and mercy towards his friends. When God says to his friends, you asked Job to pray for you, that was a test for Job. Really, I need to ask for their, I like the part where you said you were mad at them and I was right. Now I have to give up my desire to see them pay for all they've caused me? And Job becomes the instrument of intercession for them. That's grace. You know that point where, where God says to his friends, uh, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly? What he means by that is their philosophy that you get what you deserve. God calls that folly. How about I act towards you according to your philosophy? What if I let you get what you deserve? Which is a really important question for all of us to ask. I have to admit, when people harm me and mine, and bad things happen to them, there's a side of me <laughs> that feels like they get what they deserve. 
There's a side of me that wants God to play by the rules of Job's friends with everybody else but me. But what if God did that? What if God actually gave us all what we deserved? According to Scripture, that would result in judgment upon all of us because, Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short. In some way, we all deserve God's judgment. But what we get, just like Job's friends, we get his grace. We get his love. We get his forgiveness. And Job becomes a vessel of that to the people that caused him the greatest anguish. Who in your life needs that from you? Who do you still harbor bitterness towards? And when harm comes to their life, you celebrate. You will never fully experience God's grace in your life if you're not a conduit of it to others. Job becomes that. The second thing that happens is that Job is gracious to what we're calling his fair-weather family. Did you notice all these family and friends that show up once Job's back in his house and things are good? There's always those people in our life who can't walk with us through the hard stuff. And then things get back and they show up in our lives and say, I heard you went through some rough stuff. Really sorry about that. That's what these people do. How does Job treat them? He doesn't say, where were you when I really needed you? You fair weather friends and family. He doesn't say that. He welcomes them. He serves them. He receives their comfort. That takes a lot of grace. Another way we see God's grace at work is that Job, from this point on, holds loosely to whatever it is God gives him and is extremely generous, beyond expectation. That's one thing that I think God can really do when you lose everything. One of the things that happens when you survive a season like that, and this is what happened to Job, he lost everything, and he found out in the midst of that that God was sufficient, that God was enough. He didn't need all that. You find that out, and then in the next chapter of your life, you look at what you have completely differently. It's not a source of pride. It's not a source of justifying who he is, that he earned it, and he's worthy of it. More, You don't see that in Job, and you see that in a lot of wealthy people people of privilege who think somehow that means they're more deserving than people who don't have. That's gone from Job completely. Now he treats whatever God gives him as an opportunity to bless others. And we see that particularly in this statement where the writer says that Job actually writes his daughters into his will and into his inheritance. Now, for us, that's like, well, of course, yeah, duh. But back then, That was radical generosity because of the primogenitor. The sons alone get all the wealth, and in particular, the eldest son. So Job was way ahead of his time by saying, what God gives me is his blessing to me, and I'm going to bless everybody. And in that, Job becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus. Because that whole male-dominated society idea is completely shattered by the gospel. And in the gospel, we learn that God has made peace between the warring parties of men and women and Jews and Gentiles and slave and free. And now in Christ, we are all inheritors to the blessing of Christ. 
That's powerful. Yeah, Job is a forerunner of that incredible generosity of God to all of us. Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Job demonstrates God's grace in how he treats his riches. And then finally, Job embraces the second chapter of his life with fullness. People that embrace life the most are the people that have seen life at its worst. That's the last chapter. What can we take from it as final lessons for us? The first one is this. Tragedy is never the end of the story. There's more chapters to be written. And I know for some of you, where you are right now seems to be a darkness out of which there is no way. You don't think there's going to be a future outside of this. This is it. And I want you to understand what you're going through right now is not the end of the story. There is more to be written in in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you get over your tragedy. Even though Job has more children, he lives his whole life knowing he'd lost his entire first generation of kids. That loss stays with you. I don't think you ever get over hardship. But you do move forward. There's more to life. That tragedy becomes part of a greater story. And the wealth of what happens in your life because of it becomes apparent. You are grateful for what you have going forward. You're more sympathetic to others who are going through things, and you're able to say to them, I know what you're going through, because you do. See, God will bless and use it. No, the tragedy stays with you. It just finds its place in a more glorious story and a more glorious future. The second thing I want to share with you is that you need to understand that God is always working on your character. He's not working for your comfort. Now, what I mean by comfort here is not the comfort of God, the love of God, because that's available in abundance to those of us that look for it. But what I mean is our physical well-being. If you're caught in this idea that my relationship with God is so that my life goes well, then, then you're just like Job in the first chapter of his life, or Job's friends. God's just your success strategy. And you're missing the point. He's far less concerned about your prosperity. And any preacher who stands up and tells you otherwise is lying. God is after your character. And he will use every situation in life for that good. He promises it. And like Job, you can embrace and should and need to embrace the transforming work of God because he's not going to waste any of it in you. You're going to be refined like precious gold through these circumstances. And then one more thought. Eternally speaking, (laughs) the end of your story will be just too good too. It'll be just too good. More than we deserve. Maybe not in this life. Certainly unlikely to be like Job's ending. But like Job for all of us, from an eternal perspective, all of God's children, 
the ending will be just too good. <laughs> you can count on that. One more verse. Let's say this together. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared. Let's pray. Father, we just want to start whatever circumstance we're in, whether we're in a season of joy or immense disappointment or a season of what we perceive to be blessing and prosperity in our circumstances or tremendous need, whether we are strong physically or struggling with life-threatening illnesses, whatever lot we are in right now, we want to say you are God and we are not. We thank you that through Jesus we are your servant, that you call us your child in whom you are well pleased, that you are after our hearts, you are after our character, transforming us into your likeness, that what we're going through and what you allow to come into our lives is never for any of us the last chapter. There's more to be written. We will come through, like Job said in his earlier arguments, I know that my Redeemer lives, and even if this body is destroyed, I know that in the end I will see God. Father, it's that hope that we have as your children. We thank you for that. And, and we say, have your way in us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.